We're ready. Do you want to go ahead and read the thing? I'm going to go ahead and read the thing. The summer evening along the shores of Lake Winnipeg was calm and pleasant. Families were picnicking next to the Gimli Racetrack, a repurposed airplane runway at the old Gimli Royal Air Force Base. Kids were riding their bikes, cooks were finishing their last burgers and cleaning their grills, when they all spotted a huge, silent aircraft coming in over the water. People watched, slack-jawed, as the gigantic machine descended, dropping too quickly to be anything other than a crash. Folks began screaming and ran as 115 tons of metal fell out of the sky. The Boeing 767, Air Canada Flight 143, was a passenger flight delivering its people from Montreal to Edmonton. Over Red Lake in Ontario, at a height of 41,000 feet, it had run out of fuel and began to fall. This is the story of a plane crash that wasn't a crash, of a disaster that was only averted by the unlikeliest skill sets and personal experiences, a tragedy only averted because exactly the right people were in exactly the right place to do it. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the story of the Gimli Glider. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Greg, Head of Resource Management here at Relative Disasters Incorporated. And I'm his sister Ella, Professor of Aeronautical Engineering here at Relative Disasters at University. <laughs> Thank you so much for that genuinely horrifying story, Greg. Yeah, so uh, this was an airplane crash that wasn't in Canada. This is Air Canada Flight 143. It's a domestic passenger flight. It runs between Montreal and Edmonton. And on July 23rd in 1983, the Boeing 767 ran out of fuel and was successfully glided down to a landing in Gimli, Manitoba. Okay. It's my understanding <laughs> that... There are layers and layers and layers of safety precautions oh, and there different are. people checking things to make sure that airlines do not run out of gas in the middle yeah, of the Yeah, it's trip. generally not encouraged. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So what the heck happened? Oh my god. So, so many things had to go wrong and so many things had to go right. We, we generally don't like airplane crashes on relative disasters. Not, not because they're not tragic and disasters, but because they tend to all follow the same sort of pattern. Uh, something goes catastrophically wrong on a plane, plane crashes, everyone dies. I love this story because nobody dies. And it's only because a crazy amount of coincidences, well, coincidences and skills mm -hmm. aligned to make this not be a problem. So we start with the FQIS, that is the Fuel Quantity Information System processor, which it, it controls the fuel pumps and drives of all of the fuel gauges on a Boeing 767. And this is not a computer, right? There's no artificial intelligence in this. No, this is a computer. It There's is. certainly no artificial intelligence because it's 1983, but it is a computer. Why is it so stupid, I guess, is my question. <laughs> Why did it let this happen? <laughs> well, because, because its only job is to monitor the fuel gauges, okay? Okay. And so what, what is supposed to happen is that when you're at the airport, the refuelers hook their hoses up, 
they tell the pumps how many gallons of fuel to put into the plane, mm-hmm. and then the plane is full. Mm. Because of, uh, of, of a busted sensor on the fuel gauge, so this is where the first thing went wrong, um, mm-hmm. the sensor was, was not working correctly, and so what was happening was that the amount of fuel that was dropped in was, was being sort of, for lack of a better term, guessed at. So it was saying that the plane was full of fuel, but it was like estimating? It was saying that the plane was full of fuel, but it it wasn't working properly. Mm-hmm. So the the people obviously knew when they hooked up the hoses and, and said, oh, this thing needs, you know, 20,000 kilos of fuel, mm-hmm. that if you put in 2,000 and it says it's full, you know, you know that it's not right. Right. So... So an Air Canada technician had taken a look at it, and while trying to fix it, he disabled the sensor itself. Oh, no. Which disables all of the redundancy built into it. And he had logged that into the repair book, but the next te- technician to take a look at it um, was like, whoa, that's weird. Why did you do that? And undid the repair that he'd done. Mm-hmm. So he had worked around the sensor so that you could you could manually check. And then the other guy was like, why'd you disable the sensor and set it back? Mm-hmm. So that was thing one that went wrong. Now, thing two is that what that does is it makes the it makes the fuel gauges not work. So no matter what you do, the fuel gauges will not display the right amount of fuel. So the pilot and the co-pilot don't know how much gas there is. Exactly. Okay. So what they do instead is the maintenance crew does what's called dipping the tanks, which is basically like putting a dipstick in, uh-huh. like uh, to check your oil. <laughs> and the problem here is that the math gets weird. Mm. This is 1983, okay? Canada was just changing over from Imperial to metric. Oh no, that's when problems happen. That's when problems happen. And so what wound up happening was that the flight crew who was dipping the tank used the wrong calculation. They were measuring it at point at 1.77 pounds per liter mm-hmm. as the gravity factor that you need to get a proper dipstick reading. What they should have been using was 0.8 kilograms per liter. And so what that winds up happening is that you have far less amount of fuel in your tanks than you think you do. Okay. Right. Okay. So the next thing is they had, they had a hop. So they take off from Montreal and they make a hop to Ottawa. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's like, you know, half hour flight, whatever. They redipped the engine. The the pilot is worried about this. The pilot is is an all-star. Uh, mm-hmm. we need to talk about the flight crew in greater depth, but we we're just going to say that the the captain, Bob Pearson, and his first officer, Maurice Quintal, are the absolute all-stars here. So Pearson wants to have it redipped when they're in Ottawa. So the refuelers, they report that they have 11,430 liters of fuel. Mm -hmm. So they're measuring in Imperial. And using... This is like my worst nightmare. I know, I know. It's math. It's the worst. It's math that can kill you, which is the worst kind of math. (laughs) So using the wrong calculations again, they think they have 20,000 and a half kilos of fuel. Mm Mm-hmm. What they really have is just over 9,000. Mm. So they have like less than half of what they need to actually make the flight to Edmonton. Ugh. Now, again, the fuel gauges don't work. 
Right. So when they make their entries into the flight management computer, they say that they have 20,500 kilos of fuel into the flight management computer. And then that that tells them how much fuel they have left and all this other stuff. I just, I want to believe that these are not smart computers and that a smarter computer would have caught this. And like, none of us are in danger of getting on a plane that doesn't have enough gas but I'm just going to have to take a deep breath here. Remember that a computer is only as smart as it is programmed to be and only as smart as a user allows it to be. And in I this know, case, I know. in this case, what had happened was that they knew they had an issue. Mm -hmm. So they had a workaround for the issue, but mm -hmm. the workaround had been disabled and their math was wrong. Mm -hmm. So the Montreal hop in Ottawa and the new flight crew takes over. So we have Captain Bob Pearson and First Officer Maurice Quintel. These two are awesome. Uh, without yeah, them, yeah, they sound pretty badass. Oh yeah, to we're say. gonna get into we're gonna get into how uh, how they actually save everybody's lives. But basically, without exactly these two people in the pilot and co-pilot seats, this would have been an, another plane crash. Everybody dies. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they only have about half of the amount of fuel that they need to get where they're going. And they take off. They're headed to Edmonton. And both pilots know that the FQIS is not working right. Okay, so they, they mm -hmm. both know that it's not working and that they don't know exactly how much fuel they have in the tanks. But they, have an, they, they think they have an idea of how much fuel. Okay. okay. So they're flying over Red Lake, Ontario. They're at about 41,000 feet. It's about 8 p.m., central time the cockpit warning system goes off now both pilots are very experienced pilots and what do experienced people do in moments of crisis one they don't panic two they grab the manual so <laughs> they get the fuel pressure problem on the aircraft's left side i'm sorry so wait you mentioned a manual yes like oh, yes. an instructions pilots manual like there's Pilots a little always book on fly with their yeah absolutely how to fly the plane inside the plane. It's I find that deeply of, unsettling. I have it's to not tell how to, you. Okay, all right, hold on. <laughs> it's not how to fly the plane. It's like troubleshooting. Yeah, so it's about eight p.m. and they just finished serving the dinner. Okay. <laughs> oh God. The fuel pressure light goes off on the left side of the plane, mm -hmm. and Pearson immediately thinks the first thing that jumps to his mind is that there's a failed fuel pump. So, sure. so he shuts off the warning sign because a failed fuel pump, you know, is bad, but you don't want the thing blaring at you while you're, while you're trying to do anything. And if you look at the screen, you've got more than adequate amount of fuel for the rest mm -hmm. of the flight. They'd made their fuel checks. There's no indications of any kind of fuel shortage. It might also be a computer problem. We know that the FQIS isn't working right, so we're just going to shut it off. Sure. Then the second light comes up. <laughs> and that Pearson's like, oh, okay. that, that's not good. <laughs> that's not good. <laughs> so when the second light comes on, they make the decision that they're going to divert to Winnipeg. Right. Winnipeg's a lot closer, and they try to restart the engines. And that's when... You know, the sort of slow, dawning horror hits them. I have a quote from Pearson at this point. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Is that quote, the circumstances then circumstances began to build fairly then rapidly? Began to build fairly rapidly. <laughs> yes. This is I like a new level of chill so I was not yes. aware of. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, this is fine. I got this. Okay. So they realize 
that the right engine and the left engine have both flamed out. And that's bad. Oh yeah, just, that's bad. That means that means only that two your engines. engines yeah, that means your engines aren't running. Now, what they try to do first is they set the crew to cross-feed the tanks, essentially feeding both the left and the right engine off of the right engine tank, mm-hmm. suspecting that the left engine had a pump failure. And they start making preparations for a one-engine landing. Mm. And then they hear a noise in the cockpit that they had never heard before. A that very loud bong. <laughs> so unsettling. Can you imagine? Okay. It's incredibly unsettling because here's what happens. They hear this loud bong noise. Uh, Quintal was quoted as saying, it's a sound that Bob and I had never heard before. It's not in the simulator, end quote. Why? And then... Was it in and the then book? The, the bong fades away and they realize that everything is a lot quieter than it should be. Also incredibly unsettling. Right? Yes. You're used to a lot of noise on an airplane. Sure, and it's like this constant hum, even if there's exactly. nothing really going on. Yeah. Exactly. All, all aircraft are very loud. But with no fuel in them, the engines don't work. And that makes everything very quiet. Okay. So the first thing that happens is the electricity goes out. Because the electricity is run off of... The engines, basically. Oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. Now, is the cabin still pressurized? The cabin is still pressurized, and they have battery-powered emergency flight instruments, but Mm -hmm. that's it. Oh boy. Which means they don't have their flight instruments, and they don't have their speed indicator. Mm -hmm. And this is where Maurice Quintal becomes exactly the guy you want sitting next to you. Two things immediately start happening. One... Captain Pearson is a glider pilot. And so his plane he knows is how to fly a, a glider. glider at this point. <laughs> and okay. his plane has just become one, yes. <laughs> so amazing. And this is why you need him in the pilot seat, because he knows the flying techniques that you use to fly a glider, which are completely different from mm-hmm. what you would use to fly a regular commercial airliner. Um, sure. So he figures out on the fly. Ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> literally. How to make a Boeing 767 into a glider. He has to guess his speed. He has to guess his altitude. He has to guess his like location and everything based on nothing mm-hmm. except what he can see out the window. Oh, jeez. And then Maurice Quintal begins calculating by hand how to bring the aircraft into Winnipeg. I'm sorry, are you talking like a piece of scrap paper and a pencil and a ruler? Yes. Yes. Oh, dear. Yes. He has to use math to make everyone not die now. (laughs) So when I was in 10th grade, my math teacher assured me that we would need these skills at some point, and I did not believe her. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're not an airline pilot. Uh, Thank God, because I would not be able to do this. Okay, deep breath. Here is what they actually have to work with. Mm-hmm. They have a radio, and they have the battery-backed standby instruments. They don't have a vertical speed indicator, a working altimeter, hydraulic pressure, and the plane's controls were, you know, electric as well, so mm-hmm. they're not working properly. Great. Now, the engineers 
of Boeing have one more trick up their sleeve here, which is a propeller-driven hydraulic pump under the belly of the 767 called the Ram Air Turbine, okay? Also called the RAT. Now, the RAT is the only thing that can save you when you're trying to land a plane with no power. Basically, it shoots just enough hydraulic pressure into the lines to enable a dead stick landing, okay? Great. That sounds really safe, and I'm surprised more people don't do it. Yeah, yeah. this is going to be fun. Uh, my, my other favorite Pearson quote is that at this moment, uh, Pearson uh, was thinking to himself, but did not say out loud, quote, I wonder how it's all going to turn out, end quote. Oh, honey. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> He's just like, oh, good. Yeah, we're, we're fine. Um, the other thing that isn't working is their radar transponder. Of course. So the air traffic controllers who they are in communication with, who are trying to guide them to Winnipeg, mm -hmm. have lost them. They're off their chart now. Oh, boy. Okay. So the next thing that happens <laughs> is Quintal is calculating by hand. Pearson is gliding the plane. Mm -hmm. Quintel realizes almost right away, by his calculations, they're not going to make it to Winnipeg. Right. They have lost about 5,000 feet of altitude over the previous, like, 10 nautical miles. Mm -hmm. They're sinking too fast to make it to Winnipeg. Okay. He tells this to Pearson, and Pearson immediately just trusts that he's done the math right and turns north. Why are they turning north? Because there is a former Royal Canadian Air Force base there. It is not in the manuals as an emergency landing site. It isn't known to most pilots, but Maurice Quintal, who had served in the Royal Canadian Air Force, had been stationed there. Ah. So again, if exactly the right guy isn't sitting there, he doesn't know that this thing even exists. Now, does he know what Gimli is currently being used for? He does not. And that's awesome. the next part of this. So the former Air Force base in Gimli had been repurposed into uh, it was a racetrack. <laughs> yes. It was being used for auto racing. Sweet. It had a two-lane drag strip going <laughs> right down the middle, uh, divided by a, a steel guardrail going okay. right down the middle of its former runway. Hmm. The other thing is that on this particular day, it was family day for the Winnipeg Sports Car Club. This is starting to sound like a Hollywood disaster movie yes. that we would never touch because it's no. too ridiculous. <laughs> exactly. This is this is one of those like early like late nineties, early two thousands starring Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck movies that you just yes. sort of go, No, but makes a ton of money anyway. Can yeah. you picture like the montage panning over the crowd and like yep. kids in soapbox racers and Oh, uncles. and they're doing that. There are go kart races going on right now and on one of the runways there are cars and campers. There's kids and families everywhere. Oh, uh, there perfection. are kids riding their bikes on the runway uh. as the plane starts coming in. And it's completely silent at this point. And it's silent. There's oh, no noise. I mean, we all know how loud a plane is when it takes off and when it lands. Now, imagine that, but like you're watching it with the sound turned off. That's basically what this was. So... They get over the Gimli runways and they see 
that there's all this stuff going on. Now, you know, you, you would hope you'd have like an air horn or something. You just lean out a window and be like, <laughs> you know, like, please get out of the way. Don't they have a megaphone at least? Right. Just have somebody lean out a window. Just <laughs> We are having really problems. Loud. Kids off the track. <laughs> so what saves the people on the ground mm-hmm. is that it is family day for the Winnipeg Sports Car Club. And because of that, there are actually a lot more people than would normally be there. So there are a lot more eyes to see what's happening. And a few people immediately see, you know, oh my God, that's a plane coming in. It's dropping way too fast. It's going to crash. And they start screaming at everybody to get off the runway. So everybody actually gets off. Good. The next problem. (laughs) The next problem is... They're How coming to in too fast. Put the plane on the runway. Okay. How to get the plane down on the ground without killing everybody? Right. So when they turned towards uh, the Gimli base, uh, it was about twelve miles away. Mm-hmm. And remember, they're doing all of the gliding and speed calculations by hand and by sight. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they they guess they're going about two hundred and twenty knots. Now, because the hydraulics aren't working, mm-hmm. three very important parts of landing aren't working. One, your steering is pretty shot. Two, right. you don't have dive brakes, so the flaps on the wings aren't going to work. Mm-hmm. And three, you can't deploy your landing gear. Oh, oh. Yeah. I wasn't even problem. thinking about that. Yeah, it is yeah. a problem. You can't put your wheels down. Right. You can't put okay. your wheels down. And the rat, the ram air turbine, doesn't mm-hmm. put hydraulic pressure to the landing gear. Well, what a crappy invention. Boeing did better. <laughs> right? <laughs> what good are you? Somebody didn't think this all the way through. <laughs> and this is another case where something goes wrong but winds up saving everybody. Uh-huh. Quintel and Pearson basically look through the quick reference handbook of the plane to see if they can gravity drop the landing gear. And it turns out that they can. They can hit a button to manually release the gear door pins. Mm -hmm. And basically what that will do is it'll open the doors and due to gravity and the fact that they're heavy, the landing wheels will come out and, and lock into place just by virtue of sort of falling out of the plane, right? Yay! They get two green lights, not three. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, so you need the three, back don't you? wheels. Okay. The back wheels are down and locked. The ones under the nose mm-hmm. are not locking. They're down, but they're not locking. Okay. At about six miles out, Pearson realizes that he's too high and he's too fast. So he pulls off a maneuver that is like something you never do in a commercial plane, mm-hmm. but something that sail pilots do. Any, anybody anybody who's used to either flying a seaplane or, for example, a glider does, he crosses the controls. And what that does is that basically throws the, the plane into what's called a side slip. Mm-hmm. It's hard to tell uh, if this was a full side slip or a partial side slip. Basically, what that does is it sort of turns the plane on its side as you're coming in to slow you down. Okay, so literally some passengers are looking up at blue sky and some are looking down at a golf course. No, I'm not a fan (laughs) of this. (laughs) No, this is not great. (laughs) Um, Oh, dear. 
And the thing about it is that you don't do this on a commercial flight because it scares everybody. Yes. But at this point... Yes! <laughs> at this point, eh. <laughs> what I wish is they really had somebody who wrote down whatever his, uh, this is your captain speaking moment was. <laughs> like, hi folks, uh, both <laughs> engines are out. Uh, we're going to glide it down into an abandoned Air Force base. Everybody just sit tight. We'll have you on the ground in a minute. It's like a beautiful what? day here in Gimli. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're looking at about, oh, you know, blue skies. Very nice. Anyway. We're bringing this in actually a little ahead of time. And don't... <laughs> well, I'm glad they had dinner first. If you're planning on making a connecting flight. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm glad they had dinner first. So folks have a lot in their stomach as they I hope they this. had a lot of cocktails with dinner. Okay. So the slats don't work. Why would they? Why the would they gear at this point? Are only two thirds down. <laughs> and then what, what Pearson has to do is he has to complete the side slip. Right. Because right now he's got a wing pointed at the ground. And remember, he's got no power. He, well, very little power mm-hmm. to his controls. Oh, God. But he does it. Okay. Amazing. He heads for runway 32L. Okay. This was the primary runway at the Gimli Air Force Base. It still had, like, the light stanchions, and he went for it because it was the it was the wider of the runways. He did not know and could not really see that they had put that steel guardrail in the middle of it. Okay. So the steel guardrail is going to become important. <laughs> Great. So the side slip... Basically, you throw the rudder in one direction and the ailerons in the other direction. He flips the airplane back upright mm-hmm. just in time, and they come flying down towards the runway. So, here are the two factors that save everybody. Factor number one, because that front wheel didn't lock, mm-hmm. it collapses on impact with the ground. And Pearson stands on the brakes mm. and blows all the tires, all of them. <laughs> so what happens is as soon as the nose gear touches, mm-hmm. it collapses and the nose of the 767 itself slams into the ground and bounces. Mm-hmm. But it slows them. And then it plows into the guardrail. So he slams into... I want you to imagine somebody going like nose first into the ground. And that's essentially what he does mm-hmm. with the plane. So what he does is he, he hammers the, the right brake extra hard so that the main landing gear is literally straddling the guardrail. Oh, okay? that's so smart. It, it, and, and, you know, and so lucky I don't know <laughs> how he lined it up like that, but yeah, um, oh, he probably did some and, math really quickly. <laughs> He probably did. And so the extra friction from driving like through the the guardrail and the nose cone dragging through the ground mm-hmm. is just enough to slow the airplane before it hits all the people. Hmm. He stops within about a hundred feet amazing. of the other people. That is amazing. And it's not over yet. <laughs> of course, because why would it be over? The nose of the aircraft is now on fire. Of course. Of course it is. This thick, oily black smoke begins to pour into the cockpit. I think it was a few months before, there was a plane crash of Air Canada DC-9 
It had made oh, an the emergency one in landing Cincinnati? in Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah, yes. I read about that. It made its emergency landing, and then it burst into flames, yep. and so the passengers that otherwise would have survived did not. So the pilots and the flight attendants order an emergency evacuation. Mm-hmm. So what this does is they deploy the slides out of the the sides of the plane. Oh, fun. It is fun. Uh, The problem with this is that because the nose is, like, dug into the ground at this point, the back end of the plane is well off the ground. And so the slides don't reach the ground. Okay. And that is where the only injuries occurred in this entire, entire ordeal. Because I imagine these passengers were extremely motivated to get out of the plane. Yes. Okay. People dive for the slides, and the people coming out the side slides are fine. The people coming out the rear slides have sort of a hard landing onto the asphalt Mm -hmm. of the runway. Nobody does anything worse than a twisted ankle. I bet they feel pretty good, though, falling face first onto the runway. I bet they are like... At that point, yeah. (laughs) To be honest, this is so much better than I would have expected. (laughs) The other th- thing that just happens to go right for everybody mm-hmm. is members of the Winnipeg Sports Car Club grab their dozens of handheld fire extinguishers and charge the plane. Oh, nice. And they start battling the fire in the aircraft's nose area. That's adorable. Of the 61 passengers on the plane, none are seriously injured. Mm-hmm. The aircraft itself, the damage to it is minor. You're kidding. The nose cone is is a little banged up. They need to repair. And then it was like back on the job, which blows my mind. <laughs> would you have wanted to ride on this plane? I don't think I it would. It was have. flown out of there two days later. Amazing. Two days. Amazing. Now, little sidebar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a group of Air Canada mechanics were mm-hmm. dispatched to drive down and begin the repairs on uh, Flight 143. Mm-hmm. They all jump into the van with all their tools and reportedly ran out of fuel on route. You're kidding me. You're kidding. Stranded in the backwoods of Manitoba. <laughs> now, how did they know that there was not enough gas in their tanks? Were they using the same calculations and the same fuel? They must have been. <laughs> Unbelievable. Okay. This whole story is just okay. thing after thing after thing. Did you realize that this plane was full of families? There were four infants on this flight and 16 oh my kids. God. Yeah. Can you imagine? I, wow. I would not have wanted to be on this flight with my children. <laughs> well, I, I think no one would want to be on this flight in general. So if you knew how it was going to end, I could see it being a fun adventure. Sure. Sure. The people on the ground had a great time. <laughs> so, yeah, two days later... The aircraft is flown out, is repaired enough to be flown out for for full repairs. Amazing. Credit is given to Captain Pearson's uh, gliding experience. And Pearson himself strongly credits Quintal Mm -hmm. for his, quote, cockpit management of everything but the actual flight controls. Oh. Uh, They spoke at the 1991 SSA convention in Albuquerque about their experience. Nice. I bet that was standing room only. <laughs> right? Yeah, wouldn't I mean, wouldn't you think? Yes. So the next thing that happens is the Aviation Safety Board of Canada launches an investigation. They report that Air Canada was responsible for equipment deficiencies. They figure out exactly where things went wrong with the fuel miscalculations. Mm-hmm. Following this, 
Captain Pearson is demoted for six months, and First Officer Quintal is suspended for two weeks. Why? Three maintenance workers were also suspended. Oh, man. For what? Yeah. This is, this is the dumbest. Did they say swear words? Because <laughs> that's what I would get them for. I bet there was a lot of blue language flying around in the cockpit. Behavior unbecoming of a pilot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some soiled underpants? No. The only reasoning that I could find was, quote, allowing the incident to happen, end quote. What? Now, that is outrageous. In 19- it is outrageous. Now, in 1985, both of them were awarded the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale Diploma for Outstanding Airmanship. That sounds good. Quintel was later promoted to a captain. Pearson stayed with Air Canada for a while. Uh, he retired in 1995. Maurice Quintal uh, passed away in 2015. Yeah, and, and then, of course, uh, Pearson and Quintel appealed against their suspensions. Yeah, and they did. And they were successful. Yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those things where it's like, guys, what are you doing? Uh, they got a postage stamp, which oh, is pretty sweet. great. There is a really awkward TV movie. <laughs> You're kidding. Uh, were you able to watch it? Uh, so I was not, I was not able to find a copy of this, but I did read entries for it in various and sundry. Mm-hmm. It is a modern classic. Uh, it, it does not strike me as a modern <laughs> classic. No. Edge of your seat excitement. <laughs> the tagline is out of fuel, out of time. You're kidding. Yeah. You know, this seems like it would be a really hard story to make a movie about Stupid. just because it looks so... It's a lot Incredible. of Incredible. Just if you take the events at face value, you're kind of left with this story that you could tell someone and they would be like, I'm sorry. I'm That's sorry, no. Not <laughs> yeah. a real thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. Uh, the last the last thing I wanted to talk about was the, the end of the life of the plane itself. Are we going to get into the luggage tags? We will. Yes. Uh, so this plane uh, remained... In revenue flight until 2008. That blows my mind. Right? Because it was not a new plane at the time of the accident, right? Yo, it was fairly new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The 767 was, like, this was top of the line brand new stuff in 1983. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the final voyage of the, of the glider uh, was to fly from Montreal, Montreal Airport to Tucson International and then out to the Mojave Desert Airplane Graveyard. Nice. The former head of the Air Canada Pilots Association uh, Mm -hmm. was the captain for that flight, and he personally invited Captain Pearson and Maurice Quintel to ride along with them, along with three of the six flight attendants who were on the flight uh, that day. No kidding. And they flew it to uh, the Mojave Airplane Graveyard, and uh, sort of wished it a fond farewell. <laughs> okay. So in 2013, the plane was offered for sale at auction. They were asking around around 3 million Canadian. That seems like a lot for a plane that's too old to be flown. Yeah, but think of the stories. <laughs> right. Okay, I guess. This was something else that I that sort of blew my mind in the research of this. There are airplane collectors. You know, like how car collectors kind of strike me as not only how do you have that much money, but how do you have that much space? 
I, I yeah, this it, must it be like my mind. one level up. It blows my mind that there are people who collect airplanes, but there right. are. Okay. Yeah. However, the bidding only reached a little bit under $500,000 Canadian, and the lot was unsold. Mm -hmm. And so the Gimli Glider was scrapped in 2014. However, its metal fuselage skin was made into 10,000 sequentially numbered luggage tags. Okay, how do you feel about having something on your (laughs) luggage that narrowly, incredibly narrowly... I feel like that, but think of all the things that had to go right. Like, if that's not a good luck charm, I don't know what is. I'm sorry, the plane ran out of gas and crashed into family day at a racetrack. Yes, and no one died. No one died, but... (laughs) That cannot be overstated. (laughs) Let's just agree that it must have been All of what you just said, (laughs) all of what you just said is absolutely true, and nothing bad happened. Like, I I would love one of these. I would love one of these. I don't know. So a California company called Moto Art is the one that makes the luggage tags. That uh, is and there are cool. still there are still some for sale. <gasps> so if so beloved listeners, if you want to go grab yourself a piece of the Gimli glider, um, I believe they're still for sale. I don't know, I'd need to look that up. Oh, you know what just um, occurred to me? I haven't no. gotten a birthday present from you yet. Oh my gosh. Huh, what a weird correct. coincidence. Here we are talking about something incredibly <laughs> cool and I just now remembered. <laughs> So can I tell you about the Gimli Glider yes. Museum exhibit? I was just about to get into that. I love the Gimli Glider Museum. I actually it's, want to like go there in person sometime. Uh, it opened it's in so 2017. Wholesome. I love it. It has a cockpit uh, mock-up flight simulator. Sure. Um, the museum has like a bunch of parts, presumably the ones that could not be made into luggage tags. <laughs> they are fundraising to purchase the tail of the plane, which I guess is still up for sale. And they have a little theater showing films. I hope that one that you mentioned, the made-for-TV movie, is there because I really want to see that. Oh, God. And you can sit in the (laughs) seats while you watch the film. You can sit in the seats from the plane. (laughs) That's awesome. They have an interactive exhibit where you can relive, quote, relive the plane's landing on a flight simulator at the back of the exhibit. And the quote from the museum director is, it's pretty good. It gives people a pretty good look at the airport. (laughs) this is a unique aviation story and it has a happy ending awesome awesome yeah i want to go i want to go let's go so that is the story of the gimli glider air canada flight 143 the amazing and improbable way that it looked disaster in the face and said not today and i love this story so much i Especially after doing disasters where, you know, you can get just body counts that are very, very high. Mm -hmm. This one, where it's, like, saved by experience, math, and, like, (laughs) on-the-fly engineering. Unbelievable. pretty amazing. This was absolutely an incredible story. And I'm so mad that I never heard about this before. How did I get to my age without hearing about this story? I definitely would have paid attention in 10th grade math class if I had... (laughs) Had a few cautionary tales like this. So for all you math teachers out there, uh, <laughs> this is the one for you. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. 
You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com, or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? Well, we're going to veer back into horrible, horrible tragedy. tragedy. Uh, we are <laughs> actually going to the West African country of Cameroon, and we're going to take a look at the Lake Neos disaster, uh, uh, which was actually kind of contemporary to this. It was 1986, yeah. I think, so only a few yeah. years after the Gimli Glider. Not the same outcome, unfortunately. No. This is a weird science episode. This is this is one where the weirdest science I've ever heard of. Stuff. And yeah. I am doing my due diligence and like slogging through a lot of scientific articles. And I hope to bring you an explanation, uh, but no guarantees because it is really mysterious. Yeah. Well, that sounds like an amazing disaster. And I can't wait to talk about it with you.